Hey folks, before we jump into this episode, we wanted to remind you about our Facebook live stream that we have coming up this Saturday on April 18th. This will be happening at 1 p.m. Central, and it will be a talk by Kimball Cornu on the Christian art of dying in the time of pandemic. You can find a link to our Facebook page in the show notes, and we'd look forward to seeing you there. Welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series with James Jordan and the life of Jacob. And here, Jordan's going to be in Genesis chapter 38, verses 1 through 19, starting to look at the story of Judah and Tamar. If you haven't already, please take a moment to subscribe to our weekly newsletter in Medias Race. If you sign up with the link in the show notes, you will receive a free ebook from Peter Lightheart. And going forward, you'll receive a weekly email, which is a bit of a digest of all things Theopolis with articles, videos, podcasts, and a note from Peter Lightheart. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy and are edified by this episode. And here is James Jordan looking into Genesis chapter 38 and the story of Judah and Tamar. Today we come to Genesis chapter 38. I'm going to read this chapter and then we can start talking about it. It came about at that time that Judah went down away from his brothers and turned aside to an Adulamite man. His name was Hira. Then Yehuda saw the daughter of a Canaanite man. His name was Shua. And he took her and came into her. And she became pregnant, or she conceived, and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. And she became pregnant again, and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Now he was in Kaziv when she bore him. And Yehuda took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Yehuda's firstborn, did ill in the eyes of Yahweh, and Yahweh caused him to die. Yehuda said to Onan, Come into your father's wife, do a brother-in-law's duty by her, do a leper's duty by her, to preserve your seed for your brother. But Onan knew that the seed would not be his, and so it came to pass that whenever he came into his brother's wife, he let it go to ruin on the ground, so as not to provide seed for his brother. What he did was evil in the eyes of Yahweh, and he caused him to die as well. Now Yehuda said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Sit as a widow in your father's house until Shalah, my son, has grown up. For he said to himself, Otherwise he will die as well like his brothers. So Tamar went and stayed in her father's house, and many days passed. Now Shua's daughter Yehuda's wife died. And when Yehuda had been comforted, he went up to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite, Hira the Adulamite, to Timnah. Tamar was told, saying, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. And she removed her widow's garments from her, and covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat down by the entrance to Enayim, which is on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up, yet she had not been given to him as a wife. When Yehuda saw her, he took her for a whore, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Come now, pray, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me for coming into me, and he said, I myself will send out a goat kid from the flock. And she said, Only if you give me a pledge until you send it. 
And he said, What is the pledge that I am to give you? And she said, Your seal, your cord, and your staff that's in your hand. And he gave them to her, and then he came into her, and she became pregnant by him. And she arose and went away, and then she put off her veil from her and clothed herself in widow's garments. Now when Yehuda had sent the goat kid by the hand of his friend the Adulamite to fetch the pledge from the woman's hand, he could not find her. He asked the people of the place, saying, Where is that sacred prostitute? And that's probably a wrong translation, but we'll get to that eventually. Where is the prostitute, the one in Enayim, by the road? And they said, There has been no prostitute here. So he returned to Yehuda and said, I could not find her. Moreover, the people of the place said, There has been no prostitute here. And Yehuda said, Let her keep them for himself, lest we become a laughingstock. Behold, I sent her this kid, but you could not find her. And it came to pass, after almost three new moons, that Yehuda was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has played the whore. In fact, she has become pregnant from whoring. And Yehuda said, Bring her out and let her be burned. But as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please recognize whose sealing cords and staff are these. And Yehuda recognized him, and he said, She is in the right more than I am. For after all, I did not give her Shalah my son, and he did not know her again. Well, I should have put a pause in my reading there. Judah did not know her again. And it came to pass at the time of her birthing that, behold, twins were in her body. And it came to pass as she was giving birth that one of them put out a hand. The midwife took and tied a scarlet thread to his hand, saying, This one came out first. But it came to pass as he pulled back his hand, here his brother came out. So she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So they called his name Peretz, or breach. Afterward his brother came out, on whose hand was the scarlet thread, and they called his name Zerah. That's Genesis 38. I've shown you the overall structure here. Thematically, we just have a movement into a central section, this D section. And actually, the D section itself is very strongly palistrophic and chiastic. You can see there that the middle section goes right into this concern with a pledge. But we'll get to that. We start with Judah's marriage and his sons, and then the last section gives us the birth of these last two sons. The first three sons, the last two sons. After that, in the second sections, we have a threat of death. Tamar's husbands are killed. Tamar herself is under a threat of death. And then we have the central panels where she decides to seduce Judah and arrives to do it. And then we have the scene where the pledge is given and then a scene where she departs and they can't find her. So in the language that is used brings these things out fairly well. For instance, in the C section, verse 11 to 14, we go to Hira the Adulamite in Timnah, and she comes to Timnah and disguises herself. And then in verses 19 to 23, she arose and went away, and Judah sends a goat by the hand of the Adulamite at Anayim. So the language matches itself in these sections. Now, a question that always comes up in the commentaries, and one that is important for us to consider is, why this story is found here, and what it has to do with in terms of the Joseph story. Well, for one thing, this story covers a good deal of time, probably well into the period after we move into Goshen, but it needs to be told in one place. It wouldn't be any good to tell this story in blocks. 
say, well, about this time Judah went and got married, and about this time Joseph went down and served in Potiphar's house. And after a while, Judah had these sons, and then Potiphar's wife attacked him. And then Joseph went into jail, and meanwhile, Judah's sons grew up and got married, and God killed them and so forth, trying to keep it all the way through. wouldn't do anything because the events are not parallel in that way. But by putting the story all here in one place, between... Judah and the other brothers attacking Joseph on the one hand and the rest of the Joseph narrative, this is the right place to put it. There's no better place to put it if you were to consider where else you might stick this story. And then, of course, it's a mistake to ask the question, why is this story in the Joseph narrative? This isn't a Joseph narrative. It is the offspring of Jacob, and it concerns all the sons. And particularly, it concerns Judah and Joseph, both of them, together are the main characters in the story. There's more time, space devoted to Joseph, but the material about Judah is equally important, and we've discussed that before. Thematically, it's important. If we consider how Genesis moves through certain themes repeatedly, in Genesis 37 last week, we saw the murder of Joseph by his brothers, And this is a recapitulation of the murder of Abel by Cain. The innocent brother is killed by the brother who is estranged from God because he's angry at him, and that's what happens here. And also we saw that the way the narrative is put out, it recalls the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3 with Reuben leaving the scene and then coming back and so forth. Well, both of those are put together here. You've got another fall in the garden and you've got another brother murdering brother in the land. And what happened after the garden sin was you were kicked out of the garden. And what happens after the sin in the land where Cain murders Abel is Cain is sent out of the land into a place of wandering. Well, the next event that happens in the beginning of the book is the sons of God marry with the daughters of men. And that's what we have here. In other words, in terms of recapitulating history and showing the same themes over and over again, we come now to the sons of God intermarrying with the daughters of men. Judah goes away from his brothers just as Cain leaves the land. So Judah leaves the company of the covenant and goes off to the Canaanites and intermarries with them. So this is definitely, in terms of its placement, reminding us of the sons of God and the daughters of men. And that's important because the next thing that happens is the flood where everybody is killed. And that's alluded to here. The word flood or cataclysm doesn't occur, but the structure of the narrative points us to the flood. First of all, he marries a Canaanite. I've got down here number two. Judah has already identified himself with Cain by murdering Joseph, so marrying into the line of Canaan is a natural consequence. In other words, he's become like Cain, and the sons of God who married with the daughters of men were becoming like Cain. And so that's what he does. He's the son of God. He's one of the covenant line, priestly line, and he apostatizes, in so many words, to become intermarried with these Canaanites. Well, the very fact that they're Canaanites calls us back to Noah. Because when Noah passed judgment, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the servant of servants. And when you see Canaanites 
especially in Genesis, you always have to think back to that. The Canaanites are under a curse. You don't want to become involved with them. And we'll see this again in just a moment. Of course, in the conquest of Canaan later on with Joshua, that is not the immediate context of the use of the word there, but in Genesis it is. In Genesis, Canaan is the son of Noah. After the flood, a curse starts up again. You get involved with these people, you're being reminded of the flood. Judah's marriage to a Canaanite harkens back to Esau and also shows the danger that faces Jacob's family if they remain in the land. They're going to tend to become more and more like Canaanites. We've already seen them murder the people of Shechem, which because of their involvement with strange gods, they've got strange gods in their midst. We talked about what those gods are like. They're the same gods as you have in Greece and Rome. The gods of the Canaanites are all the same gods. Greece, Rome, Germany, Canaan, they've all got the same gods. They've got a storm god named Thor or Jupiter or Baal or Zeus. And they've got gods of love and gods of passion and gods of knowledge and all the same gods. They just have different names. And a lot of the stories are the same. And so if you know anything about Greek and Roman mythology and what those gods are like, that's what the Canaanite gods were like. They were violent gods, vengeful gods, petty gods, gods that you had to buy off with gifts or they'd be mad at you. And so the brothers are acting this way because they've got strange gods in their midst. And after they murder the men of Shechem, Jacob has to say, get rid of all these strange gods. They're influencing you to behave the wrong way. So becoming like Canaanites is a danger. We see it here. And that tends to set up for us the need to isolate them in the land of Goshen to prevent them from becoming corrupted. Well, the fourth thing I've got down here is God's killing the sons of Judah is like his killing the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men in the flood. If we're committing a sin of intermarriage here, then the descendants become so wicked that they're killed in the flood. That's what happened. The offspring of the daughters of men and the sons of God were so bad that finally God killed them in the flood. Well, here we have the same thing. We're not told precisely what the sin is. Just, he was evil, Ur was evil, so God killed him. The people were so evil, God killed him. doesn't say Ur did this or he did that. With Onan, we have a specific sin. And again, we'll see why in just a moment. So, in the background of this is the danger of a flood, and of course, that's the threat to the whole plan of Jacob. If they don't repent, the flood will wipe them all out. Maybe not the entire world this time, but the covenant. And if there's not a change in things, then this is the future. The future is the sons of Jacob will become worse and worse, and their children and grandchildren, God will kill them all off, and that will be the end of the covenant. Uh, That tells us why this story is where it is. We have seen these brothers commit this terrible sin of selling Joseph off into slavery and lying to their father and being crooked in their dealings and all the rest of it, now we see where this can go. This will go down to God killing the entire family. Not immediately, but sin just gets worse generation after generation, and the next generation God will start killing them off. Then there won't be any covenant people unless there's a change, unless somebody rescues the covenant. The person who rescues the covenant in this case is Tamar, who is an outsider and converts. And as we'll see in a moment, that anticipates the Joseph story because Joseph goes to the Egyptians and they convert first. 
And then they bring the brothers to repentance. Here we have a Gentile, Tamar, who wants to be in the covenant, and her actions are faithful, and as a result of her actions, Judah repents and is converted. Converted away from his sin, anyway. So, these are parallels. This story itself brings us a smaller recapitulation of the large movement from the fall of Adam to the fall of Cain to the fall of the sons of God within itself. In point six, I've got down here, the narrative shows one way that this threat can be averted by the conversion of the daughters of men and the repentance of the sons of God. Then you don't need a flood. People repent and convert. So if you look at it, the first thing we have is that God kills Ur, and I'm going to make that parallel to the sin of Adam because the next two events are parallel to the others. God kills Onan because he wanted to kill his brother's line. That is his sin. He is told to preserve seed for your brother. He knew that the seed would belong to his brother. He did not provide seed for his brother, and so God killed him. That's the sin, not something else. So it is Cain and Abel again, deja vu all over again with Cain and Abel, and then we have Judah and Tamar, which is one of the sons of God going and involving himself with a woman he thinks is a prostitute. So once again, the sons of God and the daughters of men theme comes up here, and that would lead to judgment. But in this case, Tamar wants to be part of the covenant, and Judah repents, and so this death threat is averted. This is one way, an important part of showing how to avoid the judgment that comes for sin. You repent. Now there are a lot of other things going on here too. Thus the narrative prefigures what happens with Joseph later on, which is the conversion of Egypt followed by the repentance of the brothers. Tamar converts, followed by the conversion of Judah. Egypt converts followed by the repentance of the brothers. Now, in terms of our larger context, these flood allusions also set up part of the meaning of the Joseph narrative. It's useful to think about. Joseph, in a way, builds an ark by converting Egypt and making a haven for his family. And this, in turn, prefigures what Moses does. Moses goes into the desert for 40 years, and then he comes back and leads the people into the place that he had prepared for them. Those people from Egypt, they had no idea how to live in the wilderness. But Moses had learned for 40 years how to live in the wilderness. So his experiences were able to guide the people just as Joseph goes into Egypt and then is able to bring the people down there after he's gotten it ready for them. In both cases, God's people are delivered from a flood-like threat, though this is more focused in the Moses story. Moses is more like a new Noah than Joseph is, but Joseph is something like one. Even more importantly, I think, Tamar's deception of Judah and then the revelation of the true state of affairs prefigures Joseph's deception of his brothers and his revelation of them. Joseph is attacked when he goes to find his brothers at Dothan where they're pasturing sheep. Notice the parallel here. Tamar is abused. She asks for it, of course, by pretending to be a prostitute. When she goes to find Judah at Timnah where he is shearing sheep. In both cases, Somebody leaves, goes to find the brothers, they're out there with the sheep, and then something happens that results in death, or an intention to put somebody to death. They intend to put Joseph to death, they wind up not doing so, but they might as well have, they do the equivalent, 
They intend to put Tamar to death, but instead, Judah converts and doesn't put her to death. He repents. Judah repents when he finds out the truth, and as the Joseph story, which takes a much longer compass here, after he deceives them, they repent when they find out who he is. So in both cases, you've got the righteous person doing a deception of the wicked person and then revealing what is really going on. Important symbols of office are used in the deception and revelation. In the case of Judah, it's the seal. The seal is the sign of his office and authority. The cord and the staff are the pen. A seal is like a rolling pen, and the staff here refers to the needle that goes through this cylinder, and these are hung around your neck, and I'll show you this when we get to it. We've discussed this before, but that's what the staff is here. It is not his big staff. It is the needle that is used in a cylinder seal. And that's the sign of his office. Well, Joseph's silver cup that he uses to advise Pharaoh with is the sign of his office. In both cases, these things are concealed and then revealed, and it has everything to do with finding out what's really going on. So there are all kinds of anticipations here. And as we go along, we'll have occasion to refer back to this. I wanted to lay it out first. Just a couple of other points here. Eleven I've got down. Judah's sons trade places at birth. We read that. Jacob is going to switch Joseph's sons. Switches his hands from Ephraim and Manasseh. That's a parallel. The Joseph story shows what it means to be a savior. The Jacob stories, and that's wrong. It should say Judah stories. The Judah stories show what it means to be saved. Judah is not a savior, but Judah repents. In both of the main stories about Judah, this one, he repents. And then later on, he becomes the one who offers to die for Benjamin and shows what it means to be a true king. And in both cases, the Judah stories are showing what it means to be saved. The Joseph story shows us what it means to be a savior, somebody who undergoes death and resurrection and makes a place for his people who have abused him. So these are themes that are here, and that's why this story is where it is. It's not just something interesting that tells us about the origin of these two groups of people, Perez and Zira. It's not a story about the sin of self-abuse. It's not some curious story about the leveret or prostitution or anything like that. Those are not the reasons this story is here. It is here because it shows us the danger that is coming on the covenant, the fact that the children and grandchildren of these people are going to be wiped out by God because they're committing the same kind of sins that led to the flood, and it shows a way in which this is averted if people convert and want to be in the covenant. And there can be new children. These are things we'll talk about as we go. So that's by way of introduction. Now let's see how far we can get just reading it today. The first paragraph. I've got Judah's first sons, verses 1 to 5. Read that again. It came about at that time, right after selling Joseph. This establishes a narrative link with what has just happened. Joseph and Judah are both 17. Then Judah is 17. And right after they commit this sin, or maybe 18, since it may have been a couple of months before they got back to Jacob, 
and had this conversation with him. But at about this time, when he's about 18, and in the context of having been the schemer, it was Judah who said, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. He leaves. He leaves and he departs from his brothers and turns aside and goes down, all reminding us of Cain leaving after murdering his brother. But it, it happens right away. And it establishes a narrative link, and it's one of the reasons we need to see this not as some isolated story, but one that picks up on what's just happened. It says he went down. Your translations may say something else that may paraphrase it, but it says at that time Judah went down away from his brothers. And this again is a narrative link. It says when Joseph went down, when Joseph was brought down to Egypt at the beginning of the next story, and both men go down. It's just geography. They were in high places, and they went down to valley areas, but it wouldn't have to say that. They could just say he went. And again, there is a descent involved. He went down away from his brothers, departing from the clan. He turns aside to an Adulamite. Not much to say about that. It's a Canaanite city-state, later conquered by Joshua. And then there's a cave near there where David was for a while. But none of that figures in here, except possibly what he's got down here, that the Arabic word adula means to turn aside, whether that plays any role in the language at this point in history is a question. But he's definitely moving into Canaanite territory. And that's the important thing. And at some point when he was 18 or 20 or 22, Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite man. His name was Shua. Her name isn't given. The sons of God intermarried with the daughters of men. And here we have daughter of a Canaanite. When the name is not given, especially when her father's name is given, and hers isn't, it's the daughterhood that's in view. It's like Jephthah's daughter. We know Jephthah's name. We don't know Jephthah's daughter's name. You'd think that we'd know her name. She's so important. But she's important as a daughter and not in terms of her name. We know Samson's father's name, but we don't know his mother's name. She was the wife of Manoah. We don't know her name. She's the key player in the story in Judges 13. We're not given her name. What we're told is she is an example of what a truly godly wife is like. So she is the wife. She's like an archetype wife. Well, here... This woman is a daughter. She had a name, but we don't need to know it. What we need to know is she's a daughter. She's like the daughters of men, and he's getting involved with her. He marries her. And marrying a Canaanite is something that he's not supposed to do. This is not an adventitious act. It doesn't come out of nowhere. Judah would have known these things. If we go back and look at Genesis 24, 3, you don't need to look there, but I will, just to read it. When Abraham sends his servant out to get a wife for Isaac, he says, I want you to swear by Yahweh, God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the women of the Canaanites. Don't take a wife from the Canaanites. And then, in chapter 28, verse 1, Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him and commanded him, saying, You are not to take a wife from the women of Canaan. So, in both the previous generations, they have been forbidden to marry the Canaanites. 
He can marry somebody else. You can marry an Egyptian. Joseph can go down there and marry this cute Egyptian girl. But he can't marry a Canaanite. Not supposed to. It's not an absolute law from God, but it certainly shows that the patriarchs, the authorities in the clan are saying, don't marry Canaanites. Well, that's what Judah does. He wants to marry the daughters of men because they were pretty, it says in Genesis 6. The cute pagan girls instead of the ugly Christian girls. Well, that's his problem. Doesn't say anything about her being pretty here, but he has some reason to want to marry her. Well, then it says that she came pregnant and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She became pregnant again and bore a son, and he called his name Onan. Again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. It says Judah gave the name to the first one, Ur, and then she gives the name to the other ones. And we're not quite sure what these names mean, so I haven't given you that in the text. And it says he was in Kaziv when she bore Shelah. So he's moved on. Kaziv is almost certainly the same as Akziv, which is another Canaanite city-state. He's just moved into the Canaanite culture. And he's roaming around from one Canaanite town to another. Well, it also indicates that some time has gone by. She has two sons, and then after a while she has a third one, and then they have moved to another location in the meantime. That's implied again. After the first two sons are married, he says, we've got to wait for Sheila to grow up. He's apparently somewhat younger, maybe five, seven or eight years younger. Well, now God kills these guys because of their wickedness. Verse 6, Judah took a wife for her, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now we're introduced to Tamar, and she is the major player in this narrative. because She decides after a while she must be part of the covenant people of God. And she doesn't want to be left alone among Canaanites. And that's clear, although it's never stated in exactly those words. There's a pun that you would not catch in verse 7. It says, Ur, Judah's firstborn, did evil in the eyes of Yahweh, and Yahweh caused him to die. The word Ur and evil are simply the reverse of each other. Ur is I and Resh, and evil, Ra, is Resh Ayan. So you would see that pun on the name. The name Ur is just the word evil spelled backwards. And we don't know why. He just did wrong. And he did evil, and he was killed. So now, Judah says to Onan, he says, Come into your brother's wife and do a brother's-in-law duty by her. This refers to the custom, later the law, of the leveret. What does that mean? Well, it means if brothers are dwelling together in the same place, an older brother marries, and he dies, and you've got a younger brother who's not yet married, he has a responsibility to marry the first husband's widow. And when they start to have children, the first son who is born from the widow is going to be considered the son of the older brother who's dead, for legal purposes. So, if my brother marries Susanna, and they die without a child, then I'm supposed to marry Susanna, and the first boy that comes is going to be considered my brother's son. He'll inherit my brother's property and my brother's land, and he'll have my brother's name. Now, the next son after that will be my son. He'll be my firstborn son, for legal purposes, but the first one that comes out of the womb. Well, that's the lever. It's in the law. This isn't one of those things where we see things in the law showing up in Genesis and it indicates to us that God had already revealed these things 
God does say about Abraham, Abraham keeps my statutes and my laws and my ordinances, indicating that God had told a lot of the law to Abraham and they already knew it, although it's given the final written form when we get to Mount Sinai. For whatever reason, whether because it was revealed by God or a custom in the area or whatever, Judah is applying this here, and then the sin is an attack on the brother. Come into your brother's wife, do a brother-in-law's duty by her to preserve seed for your brother. Own and knew the seed would not be his, so whenever, this happened many times, he let it go to ruin, he did not provide seed for his brother. That's the sin, the sin of denying his brother an ongoing inheritance, which would mean that he would get his brother's property. And all kinds of other things have been said about this passage and what the sin is, and none of them are relevant. There's only one sin here. If you want to talk about other kinds of activities, this is not the passage to go to to talk about it. Then verse 10, what he did was evil in the eyes of Yahweh, and he caused him to die as well. And that, I think, is where the paragraph ends. The next section has a nice chiasm to it, 11 to 14. We can do this much before we stop. Tamar goes to seduce Judah. And the passage starts by Judah saying to Tamar, Remain as a widow in your father's house until Shelah has grown up. But he doesn't intend to give her. He says otherwise he will die like his brothers. So she stays for many days. And at the end of this section in 14b it says, She saw that Shelah had grown up, yet she had not been given to him as a wife. So those are the bookends to this paragraph. And then in verse 12, we read that Judah has gone to Timnah. And in verse 14, Tamar goes to Timnah. And in the center of the passage is where Tamar is told what is going on. Interesting that that's at the center, but whether it's terribly significant or not, that's at least how this paragraph is structured. So going back to it, Judah says, just remain a widow until Sheila has grown up. Well, that tells us that, again, we've got another number of years here. We are moving down in history here. Judah has gotten married. His sons have grown up. We've already moved about 20 years down into time. We've got to add another five or six years in here at least for Sheila to grow up and however many more for Judah's wife to die before these events happen. We're probably about 30 years down in history here. So we're probably actually living in Goshen at this time. I would say this is probably after the famine, and we are headquartered in Goshen, but we're still traveling up into the promised land to pasture sheep from time to time, because that's what you do. You've got your headquarters at Hebron, that we saw last time in the previous story. The big tents and all the main stuff is at Hebron, but they're traveling 60, 70, 80 miles north up into the area around Shechem and Dothan to pasture sheep. So at this point in history, we're probably living in Goshen, but we're making long trips up into the land of Canaan to pasture sheep. And meanwhile, poor Tamar is living in her father's house, probably in Adula or someplace, and doesn't know what's going on, but she finds out. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis, 
and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.